Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. If you remember from last week, Paul's main point from last week was that we... There's some things that are gray areas in the Christian life that aren't specifically mentioned in the Bible as far as whether it's right or wrong. There's those gray areas, and I think we talked about that last week. And um, his main point was we shouldn't, we, even though we have the freedom to do these things, we shouldn't do them if it's going to cause our brother to stumble. And so that was kind of what his, his point was, that we really want to not put a stumbling block in the path of maturity to those that are on their growth. And so what he's doing now in chapter 9 is he's going to talk about how he actually put that into practice himself personally. Um, And so tonight's lesson is a little hard for me to teach. Remember back in chapter 3, the lesson was how do you treat pastors? Tonight's lesson is that pastors should be paid (laughs) by the church, okay? So it's like, okay, I'm 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 preaching something here that's very, very awkward to do, but when you do verse by verse through the book of the the Bible and you come across these things, you you just got to deal with them. So um, we'll talk about those. Hey, Dave, we'll we'll talk about those issues. And so really, chapter 9 is divided into two parts. Uh, Verses 1 through 14, Paul basically is saying there's a biblical... There's a biblical principle of financially supporting Christian leaders, whether they're pastors or missionaries or teachers or or, or whatever, evangelists. There's a biblical principle for supporting them financially. And then in verses 15 through 27, Paul has this burning desire to preach the gospel, and he doesn't want to put any hindrances um, in front of people to be able to do that. So let's just start, and I don't I know it's not up on the screen. I'm used to coming over here. So you have the, you have the follow-along sheets, right? So I'm just going to go off my notes since we can't get the screen to work tonight. The biblical practice of financially supporting leaders. This is in verses 1 through 14. And what Paul's going to do, he's going to give six reasons why leaders should be supported financially, and specifically him. Now, let's just talk about Paul. Did Paul found the church in Corinth? Yes. If you go back to Acts, he was the church planning missionary that actually started the church in Corinth. So he was their founding pastor. Now, he's no longer with them. He's writing back to them. And so he's not there. But he's going to tell them, of anybody that should be paid... It should be, Paul saying, it should be me because I'm your founding pastor. And so let's just look at these reasons. In verses 1 through 6, the first reason Paul gives for why he had the right to be financially supported by the church is, number one, he was an apostle. So let's just look at verses 1 through 6 in chapter 9, 1 Corinthians. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? 
as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now, Paul says here, I was an apostle. Jesus appeared directly to me. I started this church. And so if anybody should be paid to be your pastor, it should be me. That's what Paul's saying. And I don't think he's being arrogant here. I think he's just laying out a case here. And so let me just ask you a question. Here's the question. What's the condition that makes a person an apostle? Do we have apostles today? Do we have apostles today? Yes. What, what makes a person an apostle? Yes. Okay. Is there an office of the apostle today? Or is there the spiritual gift of an apostle? Kind of a tricky question. Let's talk about apostles for a moment. What was the purpose of an apostle in the early church? Now, first of all, how many apostles were there? Not a trick question. <laughs> there were 12, right? Okay. There were, and what happened to Judas? Judas went and hanged himself. And then they picked, in Acts chapter 1, his successor. So really there's 12, but who was the final apostle? Paul, because Paul had seen Jesus personally on the road to Damascus. So Paul says, I'm an apostle. So what was the purpose of apostles in the early church? Number one, they laid the foundation of the church. Who started the church? Peter, James, John, Paul. Those guys. In Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22, Paul says, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He says the church there is built on the foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets. So the apostles and the prophets were the foundation for the church. The second thing the apostles did in the early church was they received and declared a revelation of God's word. They would sometimes get special revelation and be able to communicate that. In Acts chapter 11, verse 27 through 28, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. He's a prophet. Agabus was a prophet that spoke the word of the Lord. He wasn't necessarily an apostle, but he was a prophet. Also, these apostles and prophets gave confirmation that the word, of, of the word through signs and wonders and miracles. Um, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you, with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now, if you go back to Acts chapter 1, when they were trying to find a replacement for Judas, and they replaced Judas with Matthias, what were the qualifications to be an apostle? There were two. One, you had to be chosen directly by Christ. And number two, you have to have witnessed the resurrection or, in Paul's case, been visited and taught by the resurrected Christ. So, if that's the criteria, you had to have been self-picked by Jesus and seen Jesus, 
in the technical sense, are there apostles today in the technical sense? No. Are there those who are sent out from the church to be missionaries and to have the gifting to go cross-culturally and reach people with the gift of an apostle? Yes. Okay. So Paul is saying here, in a sense, there's one thing that sets me apart above all these other people. In your case, Corinth, I was an apostle. I was handpicked by Jesus. I saw the resurrected Christ, and I planted the church. And that should be enough reason for you guys to support me financially because of my standing as an apostle, because of the fact that I am the, the, the pastor that founded the church. Now, before you think Paul's being arrogant, we're going to get there. Well, let's just go there. Go down to verse 12. We'll get there eventually, but I don't want you to think Paul's arrogant here. He says in verse 12, the second half of verse 12, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. So Paul's going to list six reasons why he should have been paid as, an, as a pastor. But then at the end of it, he's going to say, I didn't choose to make use of any of these rights. I'm not claiming these rights. Okay, so let's look at these six reasons. Okay, number one, he was an apostle. Number two, he said it's customary to pay workers for their work. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? He gives three examples here that shows that workers normally get paid. Does a soldier just go in the military and just serve without getting paid? No. Does a farmer who plants a vineyard, does he not get to have any of the crops for himself? Does the guy who goes out and raises cattle, does he not get to get any milk? Or any, the, or any of the food himself, Paul's basically saying it's a rhetorical question that people in normal culture, normal life, get paid for what they, work, what they do. Why not would a missionary or a pastor get paid for doing his work is what, what Paul's saying there. Okay. Third, re, third, third reason he gives, it's part of God's law. Look at verses 8 through 11. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law... Say the same, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for oxen that God is concerned. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? What Paul is doing here is he's quoting from Deuteronomy 25.4. Now, you guys tell me, what does it mean, should you muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain? What is he saying there? What does it mean to muzzle the ox? Yeah, not feed it. So, yeah, the the ox is out there working, but you're never feeding him. Now, how how long is that going to last? Not very long. So he says, even in agriculture, even in cattle, and and the whole way you do things, you feed your own animals when they're out there working. How much more should you pay us for working for the Lord? Now, 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, Paul it kind of reiterates this again when he's talking about um, pastors and elders. Um, and this is what he says in 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. 
Okay, let's just stop and talk about this. I'm going to take a detour because this verse right here is one of the key verses I'm using for my doctoral thesis. And it has nothing to do with getting paid. I'm not like writing a doctoral thesis saying a manual should pay me more. Okay, so don't, don't think that's what I'm saying, okay? Again, I thought this, this is kind of an awkward lesson tonight because it's talking about pastors getting paid. But 1 Timothy 5.17, let the who? Who's he talking about? Elders. Can we, can we also put in there, I mean, elders is a, is a term for pastors. I'm an elder at the church. I just happen to be the teaching elder. Pastors, elders, it's, it's used interchangeably. Okay, the elders who do what? What does that passage say? The ESV says rule well. That may be a little bit too strong of a term. The word just basically means who lead. Those who lead the church. The pastors, the elders who lead the church, who cast the vision for the church, who um, are the shepherds of the church, they're worthy of double honor, especially those who do what? Labor and what? Preaching and teaching. So, not all elders preach and teach. At Emmanuel, I happen to be the only elder that preaches, preaches, but the other elders like Mickey teaches, Glenn teaches, Russell Hirschberger teaches, and so all of us have a teaching and preaching ministry, but what Paul's saying here is that there's a linking between leading and preaching, and so just as just a total side note, my doctoral thesis is going to be that the most effective way or one of the most effective ways pastors lead their churches to accomplish their mission is through a preaching ministry. Do you agree or disagree? You're all like staring at me. I agree. That's what the, that is what the pastor do. Okay. Is it like a no-brainer to you? Yes. Okay, it's a no-brainer. I'm getting off track here, but that's okay. It's a no-brainer to you, Shauna, but if I get a room full of 10 pastors and I ask them, what's the primary way you lead your church? Different pastors are going to say different things. Some pastors would say, well, I lead my church by being the CEO and I got all my people together and I just give marching orders and tell them what to do. Some pastors do that. Other pastors say, well, I lead people by um, doing a bunch of programs where we're going to go out and do evangelism and we'll do a bunch of programs. Or I'll lead people by my charisma, my personality. I, I have a very dynamic personality, and so people are naturally drawn to me. Um, other guys would say, well, I lead by um, finding out all the leadership principles I can from the business world and incorporating them into the church. I mean, I hear pastors say that a lot. How many of them would say, my primary way of leading the church is through preaching? A lot of them don't say that. And my argument is, is that the primary way a pastor leads is through preaching, um, a, a preaching and teaching ministry. Um, because how can a church fulfill its mission unless it knows what the Word says to do it? And so 
Paul here, this is a total side note, but the, the, what Paul is saying here, this is my argument is, is that a pastor leads the church through preaching and teaching because this verse tells us that Paul's argument is that those who do this should be worthy of double honor. Um, don't muzzle the ox. And so what he's saying here is that, you know, those pastors and leaders of the church, they should be financially compensated. Now, we know from Acts chapter 16 and 17 that Paul also planted the churches in Macedonia. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. And we also know that these churches financially supported Paul. And they financially supported Paul in the midst of extreme poverty. These were very poor churches, but they still supported Paul. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What Paul's saying here is they were a poor church. They were in extreme poverty. They were persecuted, but they gave generously to the work of ministry. And so Paul's here saying, number one, I have the right to be paid because I'm an apostle. Number two, I have a right to be paid because it's just customary to pay people. Number three, he says, the law of God says it. Don't muzzle the ox while it's treading. Um, and then number four, the Corinthians had probably paid other ministers. Who else was this church involved with? If you remember all the way back to chapter one, there were those different groups. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. So evidently, Peter had an influence in the church. Apollos had an influence in the church. And assumingly, those guys had been paid. And so if you look at verse 12, he says, If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. If you're paying other guys and you're, you're financially supporting other guys, shouldn't we be a part of that? Because after all, we were the ones that planted the church. And so um, Paul here appeals to their current practice to show that he had the right to be paid as well, but instead he chose to be a tent maker so that he would not put any stumbling block in the way of the gospel. So let me ask you a question. Some pastors and some missionaries choose not to get a salary from the church or their, their mission organization because they're tent makers, meaning they get their, they get their living bivocationally or, or some other way. And so I'm not making an argument saying one's better or one's not. My question is, why would accepting pay as a pastor or missionary be a stumbling block for the gospel? Would there ever be an opportunity where you got paid would be a stumbling block for the gospel if you were a pastor or a missionary? Um, if it was perceived by, by people you're trying to reach as, as you're in it for the money. Okay. Yeah. Here's the thing that Paul dealt with. In the Jewish culture... All the way back to Exodus, they understood paying their leaders. What was the whole temple system? You went in and gave temple tithes to pay the Levite priests. So to the Jewish people, paying ministers was not a big deal. But when he went out to the, to the Gentile areas, they had these traveling, I'm going to call them religious guys, that would charge money to come hear them, and they would do healing services and all these other things, 
and they were in it for the money. Do we see that today? Do we see guys fly in on their private jets and go in and preach to their stadiums and pay, have people pay them to come and heal them, and, and, and then they leave with more millions of dollars, and it's a Ponzi scheme where they're taking advantage of the lowest of the low. Um, if you go into a culture where that is prevalent, you may elect to say, you know what, I'm not going to take a salary. I'm going to totally be a tent maker because for me, it's going to, it's going to damage my credibility. And I think that's an individual choice. I don't think it's, stand, I don't think it's absolute across the board. I think a pastor would, or a missionary would have to make that decision, um, whatever he feels like the Lord's leading him to do. But there could be a possibility where, well, let's just say this. Do you think people in our culture today think that there are, that churches are just just about money, they're money grubbing, and that when you turn on the television, all that televangelists want is your money? Do you think people perceive that? Yes. Okay. So it's out there, right? I mean, you can't turn on one of the Christian broadcasting networks without somebody out there, you know, sow your seed. And they get a verse to tell you how much to do it. Like Psalm 43.9, you know, $43.90 or whatever. Or, you know, if you give $15 to this, God will bless you because it's Psalm 15 or it's Exodus, whatever verse they want to use. And so it's ungodly. I think it's ungodly. I think, here's my personal opinion, and I'm speaking as a pastor, so I have to be careful. I think it's appropriate for a church to pay a pastor. I think it's appropriate for a church to pay a pastor similar to what the majority in the church are making. I don't think you need to have the pastor live in poverty, but I don't think the pastor needs to be paid millions and millions of dollars. Um, I think the pastor needs to be kind of in the, the same bracket that most of his church is in. Um, but some of these pastors and these televangelists they get paid millions and millions of dollars and they get it off of, I think, ungodly means. Now, it's different to say you, let's say you're a pastor and you write a book and you get a book sale and you get a million dollars from the book sale. I'm just why I'm thankful. You guys are all familiar with John Piper, right? John Piper does not take any money from the books that he sells. They automatically go back into the ministry. And he's written a lot of books. And I bet you if you look at all the books he sold, I bet you it adds up to a lot of millions of dollars. He's chosen not to take that personally because he feels like it's too much of a temptation. It goes immediately back into his ministry. Um, that's just a choice he's made. Um, other pastors, if they get paid a lot of money from books or whatever, um, I don't have a problem with that um, as long as they, you know, they're generous back with their money. But I think that some pastors have the reputation of getting in trouble over money. Um, when I was young in the ministry, I had a pastor tell me, Sean, there's two things that every pastor is going to struggle with, women and money. <laughs> Avoid both of them. <laughs> and so you know, that's what gets pastors in trouble, either having an affair or embezzling money or whatever. And so I have a personal policy. I don't accept any money. If somebody pays me like in cash, or I, I don't take it. I give it in the offering, write down who it is, you know, give it to Sherry, you know, so I don't personally, and I just had that policy ever since I was a youth pastor because I don't want anybody accusing me of pocketing money um, because I've had, there's been times early in my ministry when I was a youth pastor where somebody gave me money for a ski trip and I forgot to turn it into the office and like two weeks later I found a $20 bill in my pocket. Oh no, you know, and so I had to go back and turn it in, but I don't want anybody to have the, the, the idea that I'm, you know, that I want to be above reproach when it comes to money because there's so many pastors out there that have gotten in trouble over how they handle money.
um, embezzling money. Um, one of my professors um, goes into the prison back in Kentucky, and he was telling me there was a guy in there in the prison who was a former pastor of a megachurch in California, and he got caught up in a Ponzi scheme, and he went to jail for white-collar crime, and he's serving like a 15-year sentence, lost his church, lost his ministry, and he was basically doing some illegal things with money in his church and his church members, and he was in the prison. And, you know, he finally came to the worship service in the prison and said, I've had, I think he said something like, you know, it's taken me, you know, a few months to have the guts to come to this because I feel so guilty. And, you know, as a former pastor in prison, going to the worship service when I, and, and like, I guess this guy had a mega church of thousands, you know, just a few years before that. So anyway, number five, it was the pattern of the Old Testament temple system. Look at verse 13. Um, actually, yeah, let's, let's, let's finish verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not, we even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. So Paul's saying we chose, we had the right to be paid, but we chose not to because we didn't want to put an obstacle in the place of the gospel. Verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? So all the way back to the priesthood in Israel, back in Exodus, ministers have been paid through tithes and offerings of God's people. You go back to Numbers chapter 18, 8 through 24. And so Paul makes an argument from this is the way God's ordained it from the very beginning. The Levite priests have gotten paid. And then finally, number six, Evidently, Jesus had ordained it or commanded it to Paul. Verse 14, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So whether Jesus gave this to Paul you know, privately when Jesus was training him and, and giving him this truth, but Paul's bottom line is, is that if you, make a li- if you make your living by pre- preaching the gospel, and that's your livelihood, then you should get paid for doing that. And so Paul sets forth six arguments here why leaders, Christian leaders, should be paid. But here's the interesting thing about Paul. Paul says, even though all those things are true, I chose not to take advantage of any of that. I never once wanted to get paid. Because to me, I want to be a tent maker. I don't want to put any, you know, God's going to take care of my needs. I did not take advantage of any of those. It's okay to pay me but I'm not going to take advantage of that, okay? So verses 15 through 27, Paul's greatest desire is to not let anything hinder the advance of the gospel. In other words, he would rather die than to have others think he was in it only for the money. So let's look at verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So Paul's saying, listen, I never took took a dime from anybody, and I'm not writing to you to guilt you into giving me financial gain, you know, to pay me financially. I'm just laying forth that this is a principle. I'm not choosing to take advantage of it, but there's a principle that pastors and missionaries should be paid. And, And he says, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. He says, I would rather die than have others think that I was only in this for the money. Now let's look at some other passages of scripture where Paul talked about not wanting to be a burden, 
not taking money. First uh, Thessalonians chapter two verse nine. He says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul's saying, I was a tent maker. I worked. I was bivocational. I, I worked night and day. I did what I needed to do to provide for my financial needs so I wouldn't be a burden to you as a church while I preached the gospel to you. That's what he says to the Thessalonians there. Second Thessalonians 3, 7 through 8. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. He says it again. We didn't want to be a burden. We worked night and day. We worked hard so that you would not have to be burdened by us being your pastor, your missionary, your, your church leader. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God that's among you. He's talking to elders here, pastors. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Let's just, talk, let's just stop and talk about this for a moment. Are there pastors that are in it for shameful gain and to dominate the people that they minister to? Do, do, I mean, maybe, maybe you've been in a church like that, hopefully not, where the pastor was only in it for the money or the fame or the, the accolades, and he was like a dictator where he wielded his weight to where he dominated everybody that didn't agree with him. Um, some churches operate that way. There's the senior pastor, and it's his word, and it's his way or the highway, and he doesn't have an open-door policy, and you can never disagree with him, and he doesn't have any elders to, that, that, are, that, that hold him accountable. You know, and, and you come to him and say, well, who holds you accountable? I'm, not, I'm only accountable to God. I mean, I've talked to pastors like that. You mean you're not accountable to elders? You're not accountable to your church? No, I'm only accountable to God. Well, yes, but isn't a pastor also accountable to the church? Isn't a pastor also accountable to the other elders? I mean, almost every elders meeting that we have, I mean, I look at the other elders and, and I give them free permission to get in my face and say, you know, are, if they see sin in my life, if they see an issue of character, if they see something that, that I'm doing wrong, they have every permission to, to address that with me as my fellow elders because I've purposely held myself accountable to them. And if they address those things, I need to receive that. Um, but sometimes pastors are in it for money. They're in it for a shameful gain. Um, a lot of times the pastorate is a easy place to be lazy. Does anybody know what I do all week? I'm not saying I'm lazy, but I'm just saying, you know, what does a pastor do all week? I only see him on Sunday morning working one hour. He's up there preaching. That's about all he does. What does he do the rest of the week? Well, in some churches where there's no accountability among elders or staff or church members, a lot of pastors could say, you know what? He could be lazy and just hang out in his office surfing the Internet. He could go play golf all day, saying, I'm going to go visit the Greens, the Green family, <laughs> the Greens. There were two jokes. I'm going to go visit the Greens, and I'm going to go um, visit the couches. Now, we used to have couches in our, you know, rain care, but the couch means I'm going to go take a nap in my office. I'm going to go visit the couches, or I'm going to go visit the Greens means I'm going to go play golf. So there's a lot of pastors that can hide in the pastorate and, and, and be lazy and not do work. 
because it's an easy place to hide because you don't you don't punch a clock you don't have anybody you know over you know you, you don't have an employee over you every single one of you that's employed you have a boss or somebody well the pastor's kind of the boss in a sense of the staff and so in a lot of churches if, if you set it up correctly you can get you can pretty much be lazy and get away with a lot and so what we've tried to do at Emmanuel is structure our constitution and bylaws as well as the way we operate to not allow that to happen so that there's there's accountability and so um, Paul's saying here you know I don't want anybody to think I'm, I'm in this for shameful gain I don't want anybody to think I'm in this so that I, I'm getting the money out of it don't ever think I'd rather die than have people think that about me because that's going to stop the advance of the gospel and so Paul has a burning desire to preach the gospel. Look at verses 16 through 18. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. What does your translation say there? Does it say something like that? There's a burden or I'm under compulsion? Does yours say, for there's a, what does it say? Is a necessity laid upon me? What, what? Compelled to preach. Compelled. I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I might present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul says, I've got this burning desire laid upon me by God. And woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And Paul's saying, if I don't preach the gospel, I'm going to... I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to, I'm going to, this is what God has made me for. This is what God's called me to do. God's placed this burden, and that's my job. That's my calling is to, to preach the gospel. It's almost like what Jeremiah 20, verse 9 says. Jeremiah says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Basically, Jeremiah is saying, if somebody comes to me and says, you can't talk about God or you can't preach about Jesus or you can't preach the gospel, Jeremiah is saying, I've got this burning in my bones that's just going to get out and, and I can't keep it in. I've got to, to preach. And so one who's been called to gospel ministry, myself, there's that moment in time where God calls you into the ministry and you must do it. This is what you're called to do. And you must do it. You, you can't say no. And that's what's happened to me. I mean, I can't I identify with Paul while Paul says here, there's a fire in his bones where he can't do anything else but preach the gospel. I'm compelled. It's a burden laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And Paul says there in verse 18, I want to present the gospel free of charge. Do you guys have a problem with the televangelist or a pastor charging admission to come here and preach? Do you have a problem with that? Now, I'm not saying, <laughs> Janae's looking at me like, I'm not. Some of these places you do. Now, it's different. Like if you go to a conference and there's a speaker at the conference, of course you have to pay because you have expenses. You have to pay, the, you know, pay for the, the stuff. That's different. I think paying to go to a conference is different. But some of these guys that just go and preach, especially like in foreign countries and stuff, you know, you have to come. Like they, they, unless you pay the offering, they won't shut the door and let you out. I mean, it's like, very, like some of these churches, I've heard of churches where the offering plate goes around and if they didn't make their budget, it goes around again. And if it doesn't make it, it goes around again. And they got ushers and deacons and elders at the back door that 
block the door for anybody leaving. And, and the pastor will say, nobody's leaving until we make so-and-so dollars. And I mean, it's like guilting people into giving. Um, I think that's wrong. But I don't think you should ever... I would have a major, yeah, the guy standing there at the door. If you want to come into church, you got to pay, you know. There's a difference between paying tithes and offerings to the Lord versus charging somebody to come hear them preach. I do know a pastor who said, um, when the offering went around, he said, you know, our church is having a little trouble, so I want you to dig a little deeper. And after you've done that, dig deeper for the neighbor next to you who can't um, dig any deeper. Not only is that guilty on you, but you're getting in somebody else's business and trying to, yeah. And, and I understand the desperation to want to make your budget or, or make the offering, but that's giving under compulsion. That's. Yeah, I have a question on the fact that if they come in with that attitude, would they really be preaching the gospel? Yeah. Well, that's a good point, Larry. So l- that's a good point, Larry. Is, yeah, if he's coming in with that attitude, is he really preaching the true gospel? Question. You'd question it, whether it's really what his motive is or are you just coming to hear him because he's the cool show in town and he's the great motivational speaker and all this kind of stuff how many pastors are there really that have the burning desire to preach i don't know other pastors but i do <laughs> so i mean well, uh, They don't, they're not. Yes, exactly. That's a, great, that's a great point. Because here's what happens. If you're not called to pastoral ministry, why in the world would you do it? I mean, seriously. For me, why in the world, if God hasn't called me, number one, why in the world would I pack up my family and move to Sterling? Never been here before, didn't grow up here. Didn't even know where Sterling was on the map. Grew up in Colorado Springs. Why would you come here if God hadn't called you? Number two, why would you stand up and preach sin and repentance and, 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 and know that people are going to not like what you say each week? And why would you do it when there's millions of other jobs you could do that could be paid 10, 15 times more? The heartache, the people's issues you deal with, all the things that come to the pastor. If you weren't called, I don't see why you'd do it unless you're in a comfortable church where they pay you well and you're basically there just to kind of maintain and it's a job. And that's kind of, you may see that in some people, in some pastors' ministries where um, I'm just doing this because it's a paycheck and, you know, the church is nice to me and I can kind of get some perks here and there, but, you know, I'll download my sermon off the internet the night before. I know pastors have done that. When I was a youth pastor, they had this thing called youth, I can't remember what it was, but it was... Um, it was a computer program, and one of the features on it was called Panic Button. And what it meant was if you, did, if you had, like, not a, a, a message ready, you can hit the Panic Button on this thing, and it would give you the message, it would give you the game, and it would give you the illustrations, and it would print it out for you, and you could go in and, and preach if you hadn't prepared. And I thought, I hope I never get to the point where I have to hit a Panic Button. Now, the only time I panicked was in India. The first year we went to India, um, we, had, we were out at Wayne's place, and... We'd gone out to the villages, and we went back, and we were taking a nap and, you know, in the, trying to cool off. Well, Wayne comes in and says, Pastor Sean, we have an evening worship service. Would you be willing to preach at the evening worship? I'm like, well, when is it? And he goes, well, we've got to leave now to go. <laughs> and so I 
like, okay. So in the car, I'm thinking, what am I going to preach? What am I going to preach? And so um, I had ready, this was like, we went the week before Easter, um, that first year to India. So I just preached what I was going to preach here for Easter. But at that point, you're like, okay, I got to preach something. But hopefully, with all the years of pastoral ministry, you can stand up and open the Bible and preach on something. Um, I heard a story from Dr. Dr. Shaddix, Jim Shaddix, who um, was the pastor of Riverside Baptist Church. He's, he's now at David Platt's church. Um, and David Platt tells the same story because they were on staff. To, or they, were, they went to a conference where this pastor was a real big-time pastor, and they were really excited to hear him preach. And the pastor gets up and says, You know, I've been struggling all week with what to say, and I've just really prayed about it. And I know you're all gathered here to, to hear me preach, but I just don't have a word from the Lord today. So we're just going to pray, and that's going to be it. And left. And, and, and Jim Shaddock's point was, buddy, you've got 66 books of the Bible to choose from, and you've been in pastoral ministry. Open up something, and you know, you've probably got enough to just, I mean, anything, even if you just read the Scripture and explain it as you go. But don't say, I have nothing to say, when, there, when you've got that much content in there. So... Good point. I think that there are possibly pastors who don't have that burning desire. Um, they look at it as a profession as opposed to a calling. I think that's... Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. Even as a profession, though, they would still have to... I mean, that's your focus. If that's your job, that is what you're to focus on. I mean, you know a hundred times more because you are in it all the time, every day. Mm-hmm. You know, where some of us, yeah... We Yeah, exactly. I get it, though, because I'm a teacher. Okay. And why would you teach unless it was a calling? Yeah. <laughs> really? And My I'm, wife says the same thing yeah, every day. Yeah, I was going to say, Don says the same thing. And there are teachers that are in the same position. Like, you get summers off, and you only have to work so many hours a day, and they just kind of slack and just get through what they have to just because it's easy. And then the teachers that really care, you know, we work the extra hours and we do the extra things and because it is our calling, and I see the difference between that in my education field too yeah i don't think it applies just to pastoring i think whatever god's called you to do is it more than just a job um, or is it a calling um shawnee you reminded me of something i was going to say what were you no that's fine no what you had to say was really good that was really good what is the last thing you said something about oh i know what it was do you guys want would you hope that your pastor knew more about the bible than you did would you hope so not that he knows all the answers or not that there's people in the, in the... But you would hope that the one who's leading the church, the one who leads the church is, is adept or excels in preaching and teaching. Would you hope that? And I think most churches would hope that. Um, but, th- you know, so, yeah. Good, good. What I worry about, though, like you said, is, you know, would we... I mean, I met you and I knew you were passionate about it, and that's... One of the reasons I keep coming back, because I know your heart is in the right place. But how would I know that? Because people can put up such a fake, you know, like, oh, yeah, I'm really here for it. And it's hard to tell if they're really into it on Sunday for an hour. They can be. But how about the days like you said when you don't see them? Yeah. And like you said, that's hard to tell. I so think, I guess I should say yeah. we're very blessed. Well, I, yeah, well, I appreciate that. I think that uh, I think longevity, I think, here's my personal opinion. I think you can only fake it for so long. If you're among a people 
and all they see you is Sunday morning, and you never interact with them throughout the week, you never counsel with them, you never pray with them, you never visit them in the hospital, you don't pastor them, you're just a guy from the stage, you can fake that for so long. But then people need to be able to see you more than just a preacher, but pastoring and leading and things like that. And um, I think you can probably generate a little bit of that passion, um, but I think people will see through it after time. Um, and that's the, that's the benefit of longevity. I'm coming up on finishing up almost nine years. So like in May, I will start my 10th year in Emmanuel. And so when you've been with the church for that long, I think people know by now, hopefully they know by now that, you know, something about me, you know, that it's, that, yeah, so. All right. Um, Paul is an evangelist at heart. He has a a burning desire to win the lost. Let's look at verses 19. Well, verses 19 through 27, Paul has this burning desire to win the lost. Paul's an evangelist, okay? He's a, what we call a catalytic church planning missionary. What was Paul's, what was Paul's operating procedure? He'd come into a town, he'd preach the gospel, he'd plant a church, he may stay there for a couple of weeks like in Thessalonica, or he may stay there a couple of years like in Ephesus and Corinth, but then he left and he appointed elders there to like Timothy and Titus to pastor the church, and then he'd move on to the next church. So Paul has this burning desire to see people come to faith. And he, he, he wants to see as many people come to faith in Christ as possible, and he does two things that will help him in this endeavor as a cross-cultural, catalytic, church-planning missionary. So here's the first thing that Paul does, purposeful self-denial. Let's look at verses 19 through 23. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. So what Paul's saying here is that, first of all, he's free in Christ. He has rights in Christ, but he says, I'm laying aside those rights, and I'm actually going to choose to become a slave of others for the greater purpose of evangelism. What does he say in verse 19? Although I'm free, I've made myself a servant. I'm going to I'm going to forsake all my rights that I have as a Christian in order to be evangelistic, to try to share the gospel with as many people as I can, because it's not about me, but it's about them and their salvation. And so what he's saying here, he kind of alludes to this Old Testament concept of slavery. When there was... In the Mosaic Law, as a Hebrew, you could have another slave. And they would serve for you for six years. In the seventh year, which was called the year of Jubilee, you could release your slave, and they would no longer be bound to you. But if you were in the family, of, like if you were a slave and you really loved your master, and you really wanted to be part of his family and still wanted to be a slave, even though you're free, they would go through this process where this, the master would take an all and basically stick your ear up against the doorpost, and he'd pierce your ear as a way to say that slave is saying, although I'm free in the seventh year, I'm voluntarily deciding to remain a slave 
because I love my master so much. So it's voluntary slavery. Now, where do I get that? Look at Exodus chapter 21, 5 through 6. Even if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be a slave forever. So it's voluntary slavery. Basically saying, I'm choosing to put aside my rights for the greater good of serving those that need Jesus. So in essence, what Paul's saying is this. I love lost people so much, I'm willing to give up all my rights and not put a stumbling block in their path so that I can build bridges of communication and understanding among lost people so they would more readily receive the gospel. So let's just stop and talk, talk for a moment about bridge building. Are there bridges that we need to build to lost people in order for them to understand the gospel? Do lost people understand the concept of sin? Do lost people, if, I were, if a lost person was to come in here tonight, and I would say, let's say the lost person's name is Julie. Julie, you need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb so you can be sanctified. You can, you, God's wrath needs to be propitiated, and you need to be justified by imputed righteousness so that one day you can be glorified at the final resurrection. Now, do you think she would understand our vocabulary? Do, do you think she'd understand what we're talking about? Okay, she may, so we need to build a bridge with this person and say, okay, let's understand where she's coming from. Let's understand what baggage she has in her concept of God. Let's build a bridge because we don't want to do anything that's going to turn her off. So let's build a bridge. And so what Paul says is, I'm going to build a bridge to the people I'm sharing with. And he mentions three contexts or three ways he would do this. He says, when witnessing to Jews, he would act like a Jew. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul believe that the Old Testament saved him. doesn't mean that Paul was going back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. It just meant that if I'm hanging around Jewish people, I'm going to eat kosher. I'm going to obey the dietary laws. I'm not going to do anything culturally that's going to offend them, that's going to close them off to the gospel. So he basically says, hanging around Jewish people, I'm going to act like a Jewish person so that they, I can win a hearing. And I know that, you know, I'm free from being a Jewish person. I don't have to eat the kosher food. Um, what did he do with Timothy? Do you remember the story of Timothy? Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. And Timothy was not circumcised because he was, I don't want to say half-breed. He was half and half. I mean, he, Jewish mom. And so he, didn't, he wasn't circumcised. As an adult, Paul said, okay, Timothy, you're coming along with me as my missionary partner. We're going to minister to Jewish people. Buddy, you need to get circumcised <laughs> as an adult. Now, did Timothy have to get circumcised Legally, morally? No. Why did Paul do it? Paul did it so it wouldn't be a stumbling block among those Jewish people. Because what would they have said? Well, we're not going to listen to him because he's not circumcised. And so that would have totally shut down all communication. So Timothy, as an adult, voluntarily gets circumcised, gave up that right so that he could help Paul minister to the Jews. We find that in Acts 16.3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. It would have been a stumbling block. It was already a stumbling block for Timothy to go in there to have a Jewish mom and a Greek father. They, they wouldn't listen to him. And so Paul says, we're going to have to do something here, not mandatory, but we're going we're to voluntarily 
circumcise you, Timothy, so that we don't close off any doors of communication with those Jews who aren't going to respect that. So Timothy gave up his rights in that moment. He, to a Jew, he became a Jew, even though he didn't have to. And Paul says to the Jews, I become a Jew. The second way he says it is um, when witnessing to Gentiles, he would act like a Gentile. To those outside the law, those that aren't under the Old Testament system, I'll act like a Gentile. It doesn't mean that Paul compromised on moral, ethical issues. It just means that he would eat differently. He would adopt their cultural customs that did not violate Scripture. Hey, when I'm around Gentiles, I'll eat bacon. I mean, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what he said. It, it's, it's this whole idea that whoever his audience was, he would adapt. And then the last thing he says is that when witnessing to the weak, whether Jew or Gentile, he would act weak. Now, we need to be very careful here because verse 22 is used as an excuse to do whatever it takes to win people to Christ. So look at verse 22. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Now, here's the question. How far should we go in contextualizing the gospel? Are we free to do, quote, whatever it takes to win people to Christ? How far is too far? If I'm going to adapt and I'm going to be relevant, and I'm going to act like the other person. So to a person that goes to strip clubs, I'm going to go to a strip club and share the gospel with them next to them at the strip club. Do you go that far? Do you become all things to all people so that by all means, it sounds good, doesn't it? We're going to do whatever it takes to win lost people. Well, define whatever it takes. Because there are other ways you can, what are some ways you can go too far in compromising the gospel in an attempt to reach somebody. Give me some examples. Do you guys know of any examples? Well, you're not going to go hang out at the bar just so you can win over those people there. Okay. You know, you're not going to go to a party and get high with everybody else and say, come on, guys, go to church with me. Okay. Yeah, and so, yeah, but a person could take this out of context and say, to the pot smokers, I become a pot smoker so that I can win them Christ. To the drunks at the bar, I become a drunk at the, I mean, you see how it can be abused to say, well, I'm going to do whatever it takes to win, because I love these people so much with evangelism, I'm going to adopt their lifestyle so much so they can hear me. Do we have permission to do that? Paul qualifies it. Look at what he says in verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Is the gospel going to allow you to do that, to make that compromise? So let me ask you a question. If the gospel gets lost, the gospel gets muted, the gospel gets confused by something that we do to make it more relevant, are we being faithful to the gospel? Yes. On what you just said, because yeah. he says, Paul's saying that he loves lost people so much that he's willing to give up all his rights. What, what is, so what is he saying there? That, what? Well, what he's saying is, is that his rights, what? his rights, like what we talked about last week, when in those gray, were you here last week? When, when those gray areas that um, basically Paul would say, you know what, I have a right to eat food sacrificed to idols because it's just food. But I'm not going to put a stumbling block in front of a Gentile person, so I'm going to give up that right. To a Jewish person, I know that I'm no longer bound under the Old Testament law, and I know it doesn't save me, but I'm going to, I'm going to choose to 
eat kosher food, even though I know it's not a big deal, just so I don't put an, a, a stumbling block in front of those lost people. Does, does that make sense? Those types of rights. Um, go, go ahead, Dave. I just keep coming back to this. They do the same thing in the mission field. Yeah. You, you, you know, like, like when you're in India, you, um, yeah. you know, I think about how, how important it is how a woman dresses. Exactly. You know, and, and even some of the things that we were reading prior to our last trip, you know, about, about even a husband and wife, the kind of contact they they should have in that society where normally, you know, we, we have physical contact and hold hands or whatever. Yeah. That has a totally different connotation in yeah. that in that exactly uh, society, and you yeah. can't. You just have to be aware of those yeah. things. It doesn't. It, it doesn't. You know. Yeah, we're free to do that. Right. But it. But it. But it puts a stumbling block. Oh, yeah. Something between you yeah. and the person you're trying to talk yeah. to because they're going. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when 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 we go to India, the ladies, the first day, the ladies are all going to have to go to the store and they're going to have to buy new clothes. They're going to have to buy the, you know, the, the scarves. They're going to have to buy the clothing because you can't walk around in jeans and t-shirts in, in, in that culture because it's offensive to them. Also, we have to warn people, men and women do not hold hands, but men hold hands. Now, to us, it looks like homosexual. You'll see men walking, holding hands. It has nothing to do with homosexuality. It just means they're good friends over there in India. So that's a cultural thing. And so... Um, means entirely something different yeah and, and like for example hudson taylor who founded the the china inland mission when he this was like in the late 1800s when hudson taylor went over to china he began to get wear his hair long and braided like the chinese he began to wear the chinese clothing he began to eat the food and some of his missionaries said you can't do that you're compromising you you can't look like them and act like them and he's like there's nothing wrong with what i'm what i'm wearing is is not morally right or wrong having long hair is not morally right or wrong for me to dress like this it allows me to get into their culture and to talk with them and to build a bridge if i were to dress in a three-piece suit or, or something and go out to this village i may not have as much of a hearing as you know if i adopt their their culture and so paul here is saying we need to be able to build bridges and not offend but let me just ask a question is the gospel in and of itself offensive if it's the right gospel, why is the gospel offensive? What does it tell us? Repent from sin. Yeah, we're, we're sinners under the wrath of God, and if we don't repent and believe, then we won't be saved, and that Jesus is the only way of salvation, and only by his death, burial, and resurrection can we have salvation. We can't change that message, no matter how offensive it is. If we change that message, we've changed the gospel. Are there some things in God's word that are offensive to people? So by nature of what we preach and proclaim, we're going to offend people. If I worry about how many people I offend on Sunday mornings, I better stop. Because I'm going to offend somebody. And it may be, and I'm hoping that when I, what I offend them with is the word and not the mannerism or not an attitude. How can we offend? I want the, only thing to, the only thing I want people to be offended by is the gospel. If they're offended when they come to Emmanuel because somebody was rude or somebody was mean or somebody was nasty, or somebody was arrogant, those are things that should not offend. So we need to get rid of those things. Because if, somebody's going to get, if somebody comes to Emmanuel and we were kind, and we greeted them, and we loved them, and we accepted them, 
and we welcomed them, but they heard that they were a sinner and needed to believe in Jesus. If that was the only thing that they were offended by, I'm okay with that. But if they were treated poorly and they weren't accepted and they weren't welcome, they weren't talked to, and they got offended by that, then, then we have a problem. That, that shouldn't be what they get offended by. And so I think Paul's saying we've got to have a balance. The, the one thing that we can't compromise on is the gospel. It's going to offend. But let's not put other things in there that are going to be offensive things that cause stumbling blocks. Now let me talk about contextualization here because last this past summer when I went to India, um, the missionary and I were, were driving out to the villages and we had, we had a, like a three-and-a-half-hour drive. And, and so I said, what are some ways that some of the churches compromise or try to adopt some of the Indian culture that you think has gone too far. And have I told you the story about the coconuts and the Lord's Supper? Have I told you guys that story? Okay. All right. The coconut in India is very sacred. It's considered a sacred fruit. You crack the coconut, and in a lot of their idol worshiping, you pour out the white juice from the coconut, and you pour it on the altar, and it's, and it's very symbolic, and you, you drink the coconut juice. And so the coconut is equated with Hinduism. It's equated with their idol worship. It's, it's very much tied to their culture. What some pastors are doing is they're using the coconut for the Lord's Supper because it connects with them. And what they'll do is they'll say, it's a very cool illustration. They'll say, notice how the coconut is very hard and very coarse and very rough. Jesus, when he went to the cross, you know, he was battered and he was bruised. And that, that cross was hard on his back and it was very coarse. And then when he was on the cross and they take a hammer and they smash the coconut and say, God's wrath came down upon Jesus on the cross and he poured out his blood and they'd pour out the coconut blood and, and say, and this is an example. And then, then from there, they would use the coconut, scoop it up as the bread and the juice and celebrate the Lord's Supper from the coconut. Now, to me, using the coconut as an illustration is okay as an illustration, to say, okay, the, there's a lot of similarities between the coconut and the cross and, you know, the wrath of God coming down and Jesus being broken and his blood spilled out, but I would have stopped there. When you start to use the pagan idol connotation they have and, and use it in the Lord's Supper, what did Jesus tell us to celebrate the Lord's Supper with? Bread and wine, or bread and juice. Um, so coconuts... Using a coconut, I think, has gone too far because you're taking something. You're trying to communicate, and there's people in there that are like, oh, they're just eating it up because it connects with them because they're used to seeing coconuts being used in their pagan festivals. All they've done is they've taken a pagan thing, and they're starting to use it in a Christian thing. How do you think that's going to confuse people? That's going to bring some confusion. So they've gone too far in contextualizing. Um, and so I think sometimes you can go too far into trying to relate to people. What does that sound like? What does it sound like, Larry? Like? Yeah, it could be. Yeah. But, but, uh, and, and what happens is, is that a lot of people are doing that and they have no idea what they're doing. They're taking the Lord's Supper without it being explained. They're, they're, they're drinking, you know, they don't, they're not looking at 1 Corinthians 11 where it says examine yourselves and when you proclaim the, you know, so it's very confusing. But they're trying to get in. They're trying to make it appealing to those that understand that. So sometimes we try to make the gospel appealing to people in a way they understand. And when you try to do that, sometimes you can take the gospel. You can cut the guts out of the gospel 
And then it's, there's no power to it because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The problem is a lot of people think we've got to somehow soften it so that people will accept it. When you soften the gospel, you take the power out of the gospel. And the power is the only thing that can save. So why would you want to take the power out of it by softening it? Okay? So how far do we go? Should we put any offense in a person's path beside the offense of the cross? Okay? So Paul says here, I'm going to, I love lost people so much. I'm going to try to build bridges and reach them, but I'm not going to compromise the gospel. Okay? Now, the, the, the last thing he does here is purposeful self-discipline. Purposeful self-discipline. And um, this is in verses 24 through 27. He says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Okay, Paul is going to use a sports illustration from their culture. If you remember way back, the first time we gave an overview of the city of Corinth, one of the big things in Corinth was the Isthmian Games. There were two competitions in, in the Greek culture at that time, the Olympics, which were every four years, and then the two years between the Olympics were the Isthmian Games, and they were held in Corinth. It's like a mini Olympics. And one of the things that they had there was a marathon, a race. And so Paul's saying here, you know, you don't compete in the Olympics or you don't compete in a sport event and just show up for the race that day without any training. Do you think Michael Phelps just showed up to the pool one day and said, hey, I think I'm going to race this, you know, do you think... Even the football players, and we know the Broncos lost the Super Bowl, but and they didn't play their game. But do you think, um, do you think that they just kind of ca- maybe you think they kind of casually walked? <laughs> maybe I shouldn't go there. But do you think that you spend all those months in preparation and planning and getting your body physically ready just to kind of show up? No, Paul's saying an, an athlete goes into extreme training. They discipline themselves. He's like, I'm not just boxing. I'm not just shadow boxing. A, a boxer, you know, makes contact. He's saying here, just like an athlete disciplines their body to get ready to run with purpose, he says, this is what we need to do in order to share the gospel with people. Because what's the... What's the um, Paul wants his lifestyle to match his message. Because what's the last thing he says there? He says, I keep my body under control because if I preach to others and I'm not living it and I'm not believing it, then I'm not preaching, I'm not living when I'm preaching to others. I need to let my lifestyle match. And the way that I do that is through self-control. Because what's the issue? Paul knows that he has freedom to do a lot of things in the Christian life that are not necessarily prohibited in Scripture. But yet, out of love, he doesn't want to put a stumbling block in others' ways. Then he wants to clearly present the gospel. So he, he has a... He has a, a corrective there by saying, you know, when I go out here and, and to all things a Jew, to all things a Gentile, when I'm trying to share the gospel, the way that I can make sure that I don't go too far off is to be self-controlled, to discipline, to read my Bible and to be so disciplined in the Word that I'm not, I've trained myself like an Olympic athlete. Um, we run the risk of over-contextualizing by making compromises in order to share the gospel, but it takes discipline and self-control to make sure that our lives are holy and have integrity so that we won't damage our witness. 
In 1 Timothy 4, 7-8, Paul says, Rather train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. This word, train yourself, comes as a command, which needs to be obeyed on a continuous basis. In addition, this word comes from the word world of athletics, where we get our word gymnastics. The word there is gymnazo. Go to the gym and work out spiritually. And so, if we look at chapter 9, here's Paul's bottom line. I have every right, biblically, spiritually, historically, for you to pay me as your pastor. It's right and it's good. But I'm not going to do that because I don't want people to think I'm in it for the money. My biggest passion is to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And there's two things I'm going to do. Number one, I'm going to have this burning passion to make sure I build bridges and not offend people and and make sure that we have proper contextualization. And number two, I'm going to live a life of self-discipline so that my message matches my lifestyle. And that's basically chapter, chapter 9. So are there any questions or further good discussion tonight? Are there any, any other things that we want to think about in relation to this topic? That, you know, that was, oh. oh, go ahead. Uh, would you distinguish between an apostle and a pastor? Would I distinguish between an apostle and a pastor? As far as like in the office of an apostle? Um, yes, I don't know if I personally believe that there's actually a technical apostle. Like some, some, um, people on TV may call themselves like apostle so-and-so or bishop so-and-so. Um, I think like in today's wording, what I, what I would consider apostles, the word means one who's sent out. So I think in today's culture, an apostle is one who's sent out to go cross-culturally to do missions like a missionary, one who, go, one who goes to another people group, one who leaves their culture, and they go into another culture as one sent out to share the gospel. And they may eventually become the pastor, but their special calling is to, is to go cross-culturally as a missionary. So I think there's a distinction between an apostle and a pastor. Like for me, God's not called me to go cross-cultural as a, as, as a, as a calling for my life. Um, now, I go on mission trips to India, but my calling is to be in this local church and to stay in America and to minister. But there's some people that are called out as missionaries to go cross-culturally and, and share as one sent out. I don't know if that answers your question. Paul calls himself an apostle here. He himself a yeah, I don't, you know, Paul really never calls himself a pastor, even though he kind of was. In Acts chapter 20, the closest thing, here's the thing with Paul. Paul's primary calling was to plant churches as an apostle. But in Corinth, he stayed two and a half years. And in Ephesus, he stayed three years. So that's long enough to pastor. So in a sense, he pastored for that that time. But then he moved on. And that's why he appointed elders to stay there and to lead the church. Like Timothy was the pastor of Ephesus. In Titus, he says, go back to Crete and appoint elders. And so in, in Acts 20, like at the end of Acts, in Acts 20, when he gets the Ephesian elders together... Paul basically comes to the Ephesian elders and said, you know, I've been with you three years and I've been your pastor, but it's time for me to go. So yeah, in a technical sense, Paul was a pastor in those churches that he went to, but he was also a church planting missionary where he didn't just stay put. He was always going on to the next town to plant a church. Does, does that clarify that for you?
Okay. So in Ephesians then, where it says, Ephesians 4, where it says, there are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Yeah, there's different views on that. Um, some people look at the, the apostles and the prophets. Let's just turn there real quick because that's a good question. Um, those, are, those are office gifts that Christ has given to the church. In Ephesians 4, 11. Um, in Ephesians 4.11, make sure everybody gets there. And this is Jesus who gives these to the church, um, the ascended Christ, the one who's up in heaven. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, apostles and prophets are the first two listed there. Let me give you two views. The first view says that the apostles... And the prophets were only around in the early church to lay the foundation for the church because only an apostle was an eyewitness of Jesus. And that since the Bible's completed, we don't have people receiving prophecy anymore. So those first two offices there were for the giving of the early church, but they're no longer around today. That's, that's one view. They, they'll say what we have today are evangelists and shepherd teachers really should be hyphenated in your that's really the way the Greek structure is, a shepherd teacher. Um, so some people would say the only people that are around today are evangelists and pastors, shepherd teachers. The first two prophets and apostles aren't around today. That, that's the one view. The other view says there are the fivefold. They'll say there's apostles today, there's prophets today, there's evangelists today, there's shepherds today, there's teachers today. But there's five of them and they're all operating in the church. So there's two different views on that. Um, when you press them upon what an apostle is, usually I'm not quite sure what they mean by an apostle um, because does that mean that they are, I really don't know what, like a modern-day apostle. I mean, do you have an example of a person that calls himself an apostle? Or? Okay. We listen to teachings. Okay. From, and, and they have apostles. They have apostles. Okay. What is the apostle, what does he say his main role is, I guess? It's mainly as um, kind of the head. Okay. And, but, but he goes, I mean, he goes out as a missionary. Okay, so yeah, I agree with that. So like he's basically like a pastor over pastors. Probably. Like he's a leader over, like he's a missionary but he's a leader over other pastors. Is that kind of what, kind of what you'd say he is, or what he'd say he is? I am not good at explaining. Oh, okay. But but, um, but they use the term apostles. Apostles. Yeah. 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 And I, I necessarily don't necessarily have a problem with that. I just I, I guess I want to know clearly what an apostle, the difference between an apostle and a pastor. Because when I think of an apostle, I think of a person that's sent out as a missionary. And, and to now, their, their definition of a pastor is more in the shepherding, yeah. caring yeah. for the flock. Right, um, yeah, and I would agree with that. Whereas their definition of apostle is one who's sent out to be more of a church plan. They send, they send out. They, they send, send missionaries yeah. out. Yeah, and that's what the word apostle means. So they're sending missionaries out. They're being sent out. They're more of the church planning missionary. Move. Yeah. And a prophet, what do they say a prophet does? They're, 
Do they receive? Do they believe they receive words, words of knowledge and things like that? Yeah, and that's some people still believe like the gifts are still around to where there's prophets today that still receive words and they share those. And so there's different views on that depending on kind of where you where you land on that. Um, but they call it a five. They call it a fivefold ministry. Yeah, yeah, and and that's um, and obviously an evangelist is a person who has the gift to go. You know makes their living by sharing the gospel um, as an evangelist. Do they divide it pastor and teacher? Okay. Like a teacher's more like an instructor. Okay. They, they do a demonstration to, to show the difference. Like the, the evangelist brings a baby in and he's so excited that he's brought this yeah. new convert in and he, but he is so excited to go back out that he just throws the baby <laughs> into the church yeah. and the pastor catches it and yeah. cuddles it. And, yeah, that's and, a good analogy. But he then realizes that he needs some teaching and so he hands it off to the teacher and the teacher explains all of this but then, then they send it to the prophet because the prophet needs to... Um, give them some direction. Okay. And then it goes back to the pastor because the prophet might be a little hard on him. And then it goes to the teacher again and finally to the apostle who sends him out. Okay. But they don't necessarily, they're not mature enough, so they'll come back. This baby comes back in to the pastor again. Sure. So in so that, that one church, are there all five of those people like a, like a minister or a leader in that church? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and that's that's that's. I would probably take a little. I would probably say that my view of, I I see the pastor teacher, I see that as one. And the way the Greek is constructed there, I see that as one office where the pastor he pastors and he shepherds, but he's also a teacher, and he, he and so um, I don't see see much of a distinction between the person that pastors and teaches. I think they. You teach while you pastor, and you pastor while you teach. But I think there's different, yeah. There, there's there's fine organizations and churches that ha, that understand the fivefold ministry on that, and that's an interesting. That's kind of an interesting anal- analogy of the ba- you know, because I understand the evangelist has given birth to the, you know, to the to the new convert, but they need to be discipled and matured because the evangelist is going on to the next person he's going to share the gospel with and things like that. So, interesting. Yeah, he's a good teacher, but he's not a good people person. Yeah, he's a good lecturer. Yeah, and there's, and see, the hard part is that, like a pastor of a local church, is not going to have. He's going to be weak in some areas, and he's going to be strong in some areas. And so you may have a guy that's really dynamic preaching, um, and not very good one-on-one people skills, but when he's in front of a group, he's very good. There's those other pastors that are like you get them one-on-one, and they they could sit in the hospital with you for two hours and talk with you, and they'll call you and they'll love you. But when they get up to preach, they're not the most dynamic. They're kind of boring. And so, um, and then you have you know different pastors have different gift mix, but I think ultimately. A pastor has to know how to teach, and he also knows to, needs to know how to shepherd, and he also needs to know how to prophesy or preach. 
Um, he may not be the apostle sending things out, but I guess, yeah, interesting. I don't know if that, I don't know if that what I said just made sense. But I see and why where you're the, the main that everything kind of comes down that you're responsible for a lot of. I'm responsible and the elders. And the elders. The other elders, yeah. But I mean, your well, if you go back to that, ultimately, I'm the only elder that gets paid by the church, and I have the primary role of laboring and preaching and teaching. So in a sense, I will probably be held more accountable than the other elders just by the sense that I'm, for lack of a better term, they call me the lead pastor of first among equals. But... Um, yeah, there's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> so, did I answer all your questions? Okay. Any other? Shawnee, like you're up, you're back there grinning, like you want to say so. Okay, Larry. There's one leadership person in different churches with the title bishop. Yeah. Where does that play in? With all these other. <laughs> How much time do we have? Um, well, there's bishop. Let me see here. It's we got eight minutes. So, okay. Um, well, there's there's overseer. This is where we get the word episkopos. The word episcopal comes from that. Scopos means to see. Epi means to over. So the overseer is a person who has oversight. Okay, some of your translations will translate that bishop. You've got the word elder. This is where you get the word presbyteros. That's where you get the word Presbyterian. It means elder. And then you've got the poimen. That's where you get the word pastor or shepherd. Now, my belief is that all three of these are interchangeable in the same office. And let's turn to Acts 20 real quick. Where's my Bible? Oh, it's over here. So, like, I think a bishop is the same as a pastor, is the same as an elder. But depending on your denomination, you, th- you see it differently, Larry. Because, like, if you're in a Catholic, the bishop is, like, the main guy over a bunch of churches, in, in a free church, like Baptists are kind of like what we call the free church tradition in the sense that we're an autonomous church that has no outside authority. So the local pastors are the overseers. We don't report to a bishop like some Methodist churches report to a bishop or Catholic churches report to a bishop. Presbyterian churches, they have elders, but they also have to report to a, to a, um, to a um, what's it called? Pres- presbytery. Yeah, they, they have a higher... They have a higher group of elders outside the church that they have to report to. Okay? So Acts chapter 20, you see all three of these words together. And I wish I had my... Let me just pull up um, something here real quick. We've got... Oh, is it already 8 o'clock? Darn it. Um, Acts 20, let me find it here real quick. Um, okay, go down to verse 28. Okay, Acts twenty twenty-eight. 
pay careful attention. He's speaking to the elders here because he, go back up to verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Okay, so who does he call? Who's he talking to? The presbyteroi, the, the elders. Okay. And then go down to verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you. What's your word there? Overseers. What's he made you? A bishop or an episkopos. So elders are also overseers. Okay, what else does it say there? To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. To care for. Does anybody else have a different word there? Does it say the shepherd? Yeah, it's the, it's, it's the pastor. So in that one verse, he says to the elders, you are overseers who pastor. So I look at it interchangeable. An overseer, a bishop, an elder, a pastor, I see it all as the same person, but they have different functions. So as a pastor, I have oversight of the church. That's what it means to lead. But as an elder, I also am one who is called to fill the qualifications of what an elder has in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm also called a shepherd and pastor and, lead, and do that. So I think, I think it's interchangeable, and you see those interchangeably there in Acts chapter 20. Now go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I know we're, let's just stop here, but these are good questions. I wish we had more time. I didn't think tonight, I thought tonight I'd get done early and it would, wouldn't generate a lot of questions. Maybe since it's a smaller group, you guys have more freedom to talk. Uh, 1 Timothy 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires an task. Therefore, an overseer, it gives all of the qualification of overseers. And that's the word up here, what? Episcopos, which Paul says are the same as the elders, who are the same that are to pastor. Now, your translation may say bishops. Does it say bishop in there? Anybody's translation to the bishops? I'm trying to think. Let me look up a Bible translation here and see if any of these say the word bishop. Because I think bishop has gotten, that's kind of a confusing word. The, the actual word, Larry, is overseer. But some translations use the word bishop. And here's how it started. In Rome... There was the overseer, the leader of the church in Rome. And eventually they called him the bishop of Rome. Now, he didn't have any authority over the other churches in Rome, but everybody looked to him as the bishop. And eventually that morphed into the pope, where the pope became the one that, out of Rome, eventually the Vatican, that everybody looked to as the leader over all the churches, but that's not originally how it was. It was to be a local congregation, especially there in Ephesus. He tells the elders, in Ephesus, you guys are elders, and what you need to do as elders is to be overseers. And how do you oversee? You oversee by pastoring. 
Does that answer your question, Larry? Yeah, yeah if we're looking at this, uh, even in the footnote, it doesn't explain it in detail like you did, but it does. In which verse? In the, in the Acts one or the um, Timothy one? Timothy 3 1. Okay. In fact, the title of that instruction concerning leaders, then it has bishop there before verse 4. Yeah, did you say bishop? And what translation are you using? Uh, New American Standard. Yeah, so New American Standard uses the word bishop. Um, the Greek word is episkopos, episkopos, scope, to see, epi, over, and overseer. We've just translated it bishop, but the word really means overseer. So the ESV is translated almost literally overseer. Anybody else have different translations that use? Yeah, deacons are down there in chapter 8, in verse 8. Deacons are not overseers. Deacons are another office. Um, go to Philippians 1 1, and that's where we'll stop. Because <laughs> we're getting, we're going to wait. Philippians 1 1 has, has the three office, the three groups of people in the church. Philippians 1 1 has elders, deacons, and then saints. Or just, I hate to say normal people, but those that don't have an office. Philippians 1 1. What does it say there? Paul's writing. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the who? Overseers and deacons. Do you have a footnote down there? My footnote says, or bishops, Greek, episkopoi, and deacons, servants or ministers. So it delineates between the two. And in 1 Timothy 3, it delineates between the two. There's overseers. Elders slash overseers slash pastors. And then you've got deacons. And then, for lack of a better word, members. But, Carrie, to answer your question, the elders are the spiritual overseers of the church. Deacons come under the elders, and they are more the servants. The thing that elder, the qualification of an elder that's different than a qualification of a deacon is an elder has to be able to teach. He's got to hold to the sound doctrine of theology and be able to teach. That's not given for deacons. And so deacons come under the elders to come alongside the elders to help them be able to do the work of ministry. Go back to Acts chapter 6. All the women, the widows weren't getting food. And so the the apostle said, let's appoint, <clears throat> for lack of a better term, deacons to come along and serve the tables so that we can devote ourselves to the ministry of word and prayer. So these guys are the spiritual leaders of the church. The deacons come under them as more servants. Does that, does that make sense, Carrie? Okay, we probably need to go because your kids are probably waiting. But great questions tonight. Let me pray for us real quick. Father, thank you that you've given us this word. Um, thank you for all the great questions tonight. I pray that in all things we would just glorify you, Jesus, and that um, ultimately, Jesus, we'd remember this, that you are the senior pastor of this church. Uh, we submit to you. We look to you. Uh, we want our eyes to be fixed on you in all things and you to be glorified. So we follow you wherever you go. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.